0: Next week, we'll be picking back up with our Exploring the Branches of Fundamentalism series, and trust me, you're not going to want to miss next week's episode, so stay tuned for that. But on this episode, I wanted to explore another gospel topic. As Mormons, we all seem to have baked into our spiritual DNA a longing for Zion. Over time, however, the definition of what Zion actually is has changed. Zion went from an actual place in time and space to some sort of weird, ethereal idea of building Zion in our hearts, homes, and wherever the saints are gathered. This, however, isn't really accurate when you look at statements from the leaders of the founding generation of Mormonism. Today on the podcast, I have on Jesse Fisher. Jesse is a devout member of the LDS Church who has written a book called Champions for Zion, which takes quotes from early church leaders of the LDS Church and puts the idea of Zion back into its proper context. Not only do we talk about Jesse's book and some of those early teachings about Zion, but we also have a very interesting conversation about a project that he is a part of to build communities that are not affiliated with the LDS Church that are stepping stones to Zion-type communities. Stick around as we explore Zion on this episode of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Look, it's no secret that our society has become much more crude and coarse. To become and raise men and women of virtue and character is a Herculean task. To help with this, I have recently wrote and published a book. Now, back in the 1700s, Washington had a book called Rules of Civility and Decent Behavior in Company and Conversation. It was a book with 110 rules that talked about how to conduct yourself like a civilized person in society, something that today's society is sorely lacking. What I did is, I went back through the book and I reinterpreted his original sayings for the 21st century. So, the book is laid out in a way in which you see Washington's original rule. Right below that is my explanation for the 21st century. And below that, you'll find two or three examples of where to use this in the real world. Now, to go along with this, there's a workbook that helps parents teach these principles and practices to their kids. To find the book, go to MormonRenegade.com, go to the bottom of the page search out the blog post and order your copy today. I can bear personal testimony from personal experience that this is an invaluable tool to help you raise men and women of virtue and character. you're listening to the Mormon Renegade podcast. Jesse, it's nice to see you, man. <laughs> it's nice to be here. Appreciate the invite. So, I got to tell you, I get I get quite a few people who reach out to me and say Oh, you need to have so and so on the phone on the program, or you need to have this guy on the program. And and I always take those really seriously. But the ones I take super seriously are when I get people telling me that multiple times about one person. And your name came up like twice in two weeks. And I'm like, okay, this is I, I better reach out here. I better, I better do my due diligence on this. So as as Mormons, I, I think we all have kind of built within our, uh, I don't know, theological DNA, if you will, this, this yearning for Zion a little bit. And so when, when they had you know, mentioned to me that, that you and a group of other folks had started building kind of communities, right? And I want to be super clear here. This isn't something that's put on by the LDS church or anything like that. This is a collection of individuals that have come together, and and it, it it doesn't even sound like united order. We'll get into that later. This sounds more like like-minded people banding together and living near each other to foster kind of the feeling of of Zion a little bit. Is that a good assessment?
1: Yes, we don't we don't use the Z word in our marketing at all. Okay. <laughs> um. Uh. Yeah. It, What we're trying to do is recreate, well, okay. I am new to the project. In other words, I didn't start this project. So I saw what they were doing and it spoke to me and I said, I'm in. So we were the, my wife and I were the 16th shareholders in this land cooperative, agricultural land cooperative. And um, it, it matches what I think, no, it matches what I've read that the Latter-day Saints were doing before they attempted the United Orders. And so I thought, OK, well, supposedly, we, we believe we're going to build the New Jerusalem Zion Society. Maybe we should get some practice in <laughs> by building uh, this what the early Brethren called the stepping stone to Zion, which was cooperative communities. And Philip Gleason, who started this project, um, in his presentation, I realized that's what this guy's doing. I'm in, so that's how I got involved.
0: So, so real quick, St- Stephen Gleason was that the gentleman's name, sir? Philip Philip Gleason. Philip Gleason. So he, this was kind of his his idea. Mm-hmm. And and did he ever mention to you what what spurred him on to do this?
1: Well, in our introductory video that I made uh, on YouTube um he describes a story where he and his young family uh were caught in the middle of the winter in a tiny Idaho town uh in a camping trailer at midnight with uh and it was about 0 degrees inside the camping trailer he and his three little daughters and his wife were trying to stay warm and not freeze to death and he says that rewired really my brain <laughs> And um from then on, he was very into preparedness. He was into finding multiple ways of of um, producing heat and fuel you know having fuel in a crisis situation. In fact, he's done consulting for um, preparedness and help help people retrofit their houses. Um, he's uh, done commercial and residential real estate for or construction for I believe thirty or forty years. So he had a, a background in uh preparedness and and this idea just fell in his head. <laughs> um, and he fought it. He thought that's never gonna work. But I don't know if you've ever experienced this where an idea gets hold of you and it just won't let go. And that's what happened to <laughs> Philip. Yeah, <laughs> see. And um, so he kept fighting it and saying, No, that won't work. And and then this new idea would come to him and he'd say, well, okay, maybe if we tweak it this way, it might work. And finally he came up with this system that he started proposing to friends and neighbors and uh, it caught on. So now now we have over 120 people living at our first community and we just bought land in Arizona near Snowflake uh, for our second community. Wow. So, yeah.
0: So do you find it's predominantly... Um, LDS folks or Mormon folks of whatever stripe that that show interest in this?
1: Well, that's the thing is we're in Utah. So Utah's, what, 70% LDS of some form or another, I guess. And so naturally, our shareholders lean heavily towards that. Um, I know we, I'm assuming we don't ask people what their religion or their, or their politics are, we're looking for people who want to live a self-reliant lifestyle um who want to transition away from being dependent on the system to being independent uh with other people doing the same thing you know you can go you can go buy 20 acres up in the mountains but you're on your own right <laughs> in many ways um yeah so so what was so your
0: lds mhm were you born LDS?
1: No, my family joined, missionaries found us when I was seven, and then we joined when I was eight, uh, which is, I can tell that brief story, if you like. Yeah, absolutely, please. Um, We were a very contentious family. Um, Sarcasm was our language we spoke at home, (laughs) and um, uh, so when the missionaries came, they brought the Spirit with them into our home, and even as this seven-year-old, eight-year-old, I, I could tell. In fact, I would stand at the screen door. This was in Texas. Stand at the screen door when they would leave, and I would just kind of go, uh, you know, spirit left with them. And so uh, about, uh, when was it? Somewhere around January of 1970, they popped the question, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Fisher, would you like to get baptized? I leaped out of my chair say yes mom say yes dad because i knew we needed what they had Mm -hmm. and so in every sense of the word i'm a convert and um that's actually created some problems for me because uh, we don't seem to believe all the doctrines we teach right did i say that out loud (laughs) one of which is the concept of zion which i've been absolutely fascinated with since i was a kid How'd you get fascinated in that? Right of all the things, because like I'm a convert as well. I was
0: I was a convert to the LDS Church, right, and then yeah. and then became a fundamentalist. But in like there's the the one thing about Mormonism, and I've said this before, it's unlike any church I can think of. Right, you're not just showing up on Sunday, no matter what stripe you are. Right, whether that's mm-hmm. LDS because you have callings there, and you have callings as a fundamentalist. It's not enough to show up on Sunday, shake a few hands, throw a couple bucks in the collection plate, and then go home. doesn't work, right? This, you have to do something. Like, I remember when I was learning about Mormonism, and, you know, it's like you're getting in your wagon, and you're going somewhere, and you're going to do something. And then you find out it's, you know, you really start putting the pieces together, and it's in the Old West, and you're like, okay, that's kind of straight-up gangster, right? I mean, that's some tough-as-nails stuff that, that just gets to you. But also, there's there's a whole range of doctrine in there. From, you know, it's unique in the sense that uh, Mormonism, to, to my knowledge, is the only theology in which uh, you can't get to where you want to be, which is exaltation by yourself, right? So now you have this theological family dynamic, right? And then you you can branch off and study, you know, LDS history, which is rich and fascinating. And then, you know, like you said, there's there's Zion. So so what was it that you think that pulled you in that direction?
1: Well, it's um I remember it very clearly. Actually, the family there were two families that fellowshipped us when we joined the church. Uh Mark Benson, Ezra T's son. Really? And and then this other family, I can't remember their names. I should ask my sister, she'll probably remember. Um, they were hardcore John Birchers. Okay. <laughs> And so uh, they had given us uh, a, a copy of None Dare Call It Conspiracy, and it was sitting on our bookshelf. It's
0: a great book. And so I
1: was about, I figure I was about ten, and I read that book. Okay, and it strongly affected me. the The idea that there were people who were willing to sacrifice other people's freedoms for their own power, gain, and glory, just really burned me. And I even offered to God, "I'll I'll be happy to go assassinate." you know John Ken- or uh Ted Kennedy if you want me to <laughs> but he didn't thank goodness and uh and so you know that really affected me to to realize that I can't trust the media I can't trust newspapers or TV uh I can only trust God um I can trust the scriptures I can trust our church leaders um and then and then I married a fellow from Salt Lake when I was, I believe I was 15, and um, she gave me a book at that time when she got married called uh, Added Upon. It's a novel that was written in 1898, I believe, by a fellow by the name of Nephi Anderson, and obviously he's LDS. And um, in that book, the main character gives the king of Poland a tour of the New Jerusalem Zion Society. So I had I had the society that none dare call it conspiracy said we were headed towards. And then I compared that with the New Jerusalem Zion Society. And I said, and so um, and then in college I read uh well actually it wasn't a book yet. Um Hugh Nibley's Approaching Zion mm-hmm. was just a set of talks, mm-hmm. script or um uh, What do you call them? Uh, Articles. Yep. And I read several of those and it just, it just, I realized that I had forgotten Zion and had been pulled into Babylon uh, with all its attractions, right? I was going to be a success. I was going to, you know, get rich and then help the church. Right. (laughs) A lot of people, I know a lot of people uh, use that excuse. Anyway, so reading Hugh Nibley just really rocked my world. And I said, okay. I got to take this seriously. So since then, I've been uh, reading just about everything I can get my hands on regarding Zion and how. Uh, and again, the idea of shouldn't we be preparing for it? Uh, you know, every every time I got asked to teach elders quorum, guess what I taught about? Right. I talking. I taught about Zion for 40 years. I've been doing that. And I just see glazed over eyes in the, in the group. And I just think, how are we going to do this if we don't move in that direction? And so, um, so I've been looking my entire adult life for more Zion-like ways of organizing society. Zion isn't, like you say, Zion is a culture. It's a, it's a civilization, um, or Mormonism, if you will. And, um, I got a cough drop in my mouth. Oh, no, you're just fine. Um, let's see, where was I? So Z- Zion is a society. It's a civilization. So it's going to have its own unique education system. It's going to have its own unique governmental system. It's going to have its own unique economic system. What could those look like? What would be um, an interim step you know, if you see Zion, as a, as, a, a Zion or as a celestial level society, and we're living in a telestial, that means there's got to be a terrestrial stepping stone in between, right? Right. So what does that look like? And how can we start? Why wait? <laughs> right. Um, you know, DNC 58, uh, 26 through 28, uh, God wants us to do many good things of our own free will. To bring to pass much righteousness. What would be more uh, of a good thing to do than to start working towards what he wants for us? Zion is the society God wants us to enjoy while we're on earth. So why are we so dedicated to sustaining and building Babylon? It it just baffles me.
0: Anyway, so... I think that's a good question, and I think that's one I want to explore later. But but you said you talked about that stepping stone, and just this last week, me and my family took a trip, uh, went went to North Dakota first to see my daughter and my grandchildren, and then I was like, let's why we're here. We're not. I mean, we're not horribly far from Nauvoo. Why don't we just swing out there and we'll go to on and and then we went. You know, we went to Carthage and and far west and Liberty. But here's what I came to understand about Nauvoo, right, as I was there. And I think Nauvoo was actually a step back. I think they tried the United Order thing there in Missouri. And first off, obviously, there were some mistakes made. But also, you had the persecutions. And in Nauvoo, you you seem to almost start to get that, that middle step, as you were talking about. Because I kind of asked some of the folks around there, I was like, okay, so explain the, the economics to me. Because they're coming from, a lot of them are coming from Missouri where they've tried this. Are, are they trying to do the same thing here? And it was more of one of those things where it was that stepping stone, right? Where they're saying, well, we were still, they were still exchanging script, but the difference was, is that it was all centered around the community. So you went out of your way to make sure that someone could get something from within the community. And, hmm. and that was one way that I saw. And then it was just fascinating that just, you know, three days later, I'm calling your phone, but yeah, it was, it, it, it seemed to be like that, that almost like that training ground a little bit. Hmm.
1: Yeah. I, I have a chart. I don't think it ended up in my book. Uh, I have a chart that I drew in a present PowerPoint presentation I gave once. Um, that showed that the the Joseph tried to bring us up to the celestial and we couldn't handle it. So it dropped back down to telestial and, and 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 maybe even terrestrial, like you say. But Brigham definitely tried to get us mm-hmm. to the telestial level or terrestrial level, the middle level. And then I think he tried too soon to shift back up to the celestial level. So they only did the cooperatives for 10 years. And if you think about it, the Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years, waiting for the older generation to die off. He had the saints live cooperative free enterprise for 10 years and then tried to get them to do uh, the United Order. And within a year or two, 90% of them failed. The, the saints just weren't ready. Right. And you know, we needed that whole generation of people living the at least the terrestrial level law before we can even attempt the celestial level uh and and maybe we can't even do the celestial level until christ comes and the telestialites are uh exit stage left
0: right well that that's certainly a possibility i know john taylor and brigham had some interesting quotes of you know hey the lord's not going to come back till we have a people prepared to receive him. Moses
1: seven says that. Right. It says it right there. Moses seven fifty-eight or something. It says uh that's that uh Christ would come to Zion. Well, he can't come to Zion if there's no Zion yet. Right. So can we move in that direction? Yeah, I... and and I have to admit the church has done some things that push us in that direction, like the um uh, Oh shoot! What's that program called? Um, well, the Self Reliance Program, for example, is a, is at least a, 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 an attempt to move in that direction, and also the that rotating fund for people to go to college. The pre- I can't remember what's called
0: Perpetual Education Fund.
1: Yeah, that. So there has been some efforts to move in that direction, and and one of the things that really surprised me, and I guess we haven't talked about my book yet, really was when I was doing the research for it was when it dawned on me when they talked it when when Brigham Young, John Taylor, Wilford Woodruff, George Q. Cannon, Lorenzo Snow, Joseph S. Smith when they talked about Zion to them it was an economic system Mm -hmm. and today in all these Zion books I have and uh, you know uh, God bless the authors but it's all this poof poof you know, we're all, we all have to be nearly perfect before we can build Zion. And, well, no, <laughs> that's not what they taught. Mm-mm. They taught we can build Zion anytime we want. All we have to do is want to bad enough. Uh, but like, like I joked earlier, uh, Babylon's just too much fun.
0: Yeah. Let, let's talk about your book for a second. Cause I found that absolutely fascinating because there are some books that i certainly enjoy the the ones that are just the author's thoughts on some things yours i really liked in in what i've read so far because your opinion is different in the sense that a lot of times authors will take something especially when when you're dealing with theology or something like that it'll take a passage and then it seems to the, the author will kind of put his spin on it This Mm -hmm. is what I think it says. I enjoyed yours because you kind of conformed your thinking to what those early brethren said. And I found that super refreshing, especially about this subject, right?
1: Well, and that was the whole point of my research was to find out what did they believe? What did they teach? Mm -hmm. Um, And the reason I was doing it is uh, (laughs) I was... uh, And I was set apart as the uh, secretary in our high priest group. And so as as part of the presidency, it was my role to teach priesthood every quarter on a fifth Sunday, I believe. And um, so obviously I would teach about Zion. Well, we had the state president in our quorum who excommunicated Avraham Gileadi. He was in our quorum. We had uh, a, a lifelong institute teacher. Uh, and then we had an armchair scriptorian, and these three were buddies, and I referred to them somewhat lovingly as our ward Sanhedrin, <laughs> and I knew, I knew that I had to substantiate anything I taught about Zion with mm-hmm. scripture and with uh, words of the prophets, and so I went on a four-year study to find out what did they teach, and that's that is the whole basis of my belief about what Zion is and how we can build it and and uh, what's required. Wait, wait, and so, so I took so those all those quotes I ended up finding. The book says I found 700, but actually there's more like a thousand. And I just to, as I'm reading them, I'm saying, OK, what category can I put this in? And they fell neatly into 12 different categories. And those are the first 12 chapters of the book. So I introduced the ideas. Uh, so that uh, and, and I I hope that I'm not putting a spin on on their quotes. I don't think I am. I I was trying to say, okay, what did they teach?
0: Right. I, I think it's mission accomplished. As I as I read through it, like I feel like I got a pretty good nose for BS, right? I can I can kind of I can kind of get that that vibe really good. My meters highly tuned Uh, so as as i read read some of your stuff there like i said that's what jumped out to me is is here's a guy who's just letting those old brethren and and even some of the newer newer leaders within the lds church yeah there's a few in there yeah to to speak for themselves you weren't trying to um let them speak and then you try to be an interpreter you just said this is what they said this is what this means and coming from a guy who's who's you know big on what was the original intent um funny both in my politics as well as my my religion <laughs> I anyway as as you know I'm, I'm big on original intent what was your sure. intent? You're right and, and and it was a breath of fresh air to be able to read something that I felt really captured that intent so I think it's mission accomplished on your end and, and you really deserve to be commended for that What was your biggest surprise in doing your research?
1: There were several. Holy cow. Uh, Well, the concept that that building Zion to them was an economic activity, not a spiritual one. Sure, there's a spiritual element. Obviously, you can't be rooted in pride, fear, and jealousy and still build Zion. You've got to overcome the natural man. Mm -hmm. But assuming, I mean, we've been doing this church thing for 200 years now. Can we go ahead and say, okay, we got this? Can we move on now? Um, Anyway, so um, let's see. I'm sorry. What was your question?
0: No, no, you're good. What were some of your biggest surprises? Oh, biggest
1: surprises. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that it was an economic activity that uh, cooperatives, so cooperative free enterprise was a stepping stone to Zion. I I didn't know that. I knew that the saints had done cooperatives for about 10 years. And they had remarkable results, but I didn't know that they taught this. We're doing this in order to prepare ourselves for Zion. Right. Also, I didn't know that uh, they said over and over again, uh, we are building Zion here in Utah in order to fulfill the prophecies of Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. Right. I had no idea they saw it that way. Which now makes sense when Utahns who've lived here forever refer occasionally to Utah as Zion. That's because they were building it here. Yeah. That's where that nickname came from. Uh, Quote after quote after quote, we are here to build Zion. John Taylor said it over and over and over again. Um, 80, I, I believe he gave, I'd have to look up the numbers, but I believe he gave 80 talks in something like 78 of them, he either said, we are building Zion like Enoch did, or he quoted Jeremiah 13, whatever it is, I, I will take one from a city and two from a family, and we shall build Zion, or he just mentioned Zion in passing. That's that's a huge focus, for, uh, and Brim Young talked about Zion even more than John Taylor did. Of course, he had longer to talk about it, so that was a big surprise. Another huge surprise was they taught that the point, the entire point of us being given the priesthood was to build Zion. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the covenants in the LDS Temple, what's the last covenant? Right. What what does it build up to? Zion. Uh of the of the covenants that we do in the in the endowment, what's it build up to? and And that became clear to me as I was reading all these quotes was that and, and and another thing there were there were lots of things that really surprised me when i reading all this was that it was a central tenet of the church. you know, President Kimball came up with the three fold mission of the church: preach right. the gospel, redeem the dead, do missionary work or uh
0: perfect
1: uh perfect saint, thank you. Uh, uh that third one we don't have a program for, which is too bad. Um, so uh in in reading all these quotes, no no one came out like President Kimball did and essentially branded the church with with the threefold mission, but they would talk about maybe five things, but building Zion was always in there, right? So in and from what I gathered it was central to what they were doing. It, it was the gospel. They, they to them, it was uh, preach the gospel, gather the saints, build Zion so that we can receive Christ. Yep. That was the mission of the church. And and really that gathering
0: of the saints thing, that's, that's a Zion thing, right? I mean, you can't build a society without people. Without people.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
0: And, And so that's, that's really just an extension of, of, of the mission of zion right is is to gather in israel gather in those who who feel that call who the lord has prepared so let me ask you this how is it then that we go from zion because look this isn't just unique to lds folks this this is also in fundamentalism as well a little bit how is it we go from let's build zion you know, like every talk is centered around that. This is what we're doing. This is what we're about. This is our mission statement. We're here to build this society. How do we go from that to where we are now, where it, it, it sometimes feels like it's almost a...
1: Compromise?
0: Like, <laughs> like it's, it's one of those things we don't even put emphasis on much anymore, right? Yeah. We'll We'll say things like, "Let's just build Zion where we're at."
1: How did we get there? There's a there's a quote in. I was just sitting down before the call and was reading the introduction of my book, and I think it's in there. Um, But there was a quote where, once they stopped doing pursuing building Zion, oh. Yeah, I think it was Leonard Arrington. So this book, Great Basin I highly Kingdom. recommend reading this book, Great Basin Kingdom by Leonard J. Arrington. It, when he first wrote it, it was classified as anti-Mormon because the church historian's office only had the two options. It's either right. pro-Mormon or it's anti-Mormon. Right. But it's definitely not anti-Mormon. Um, anyway, it's an economic history of the Latter-day Saints from 1830 to 1900. He makes it very clear that what happened was um, Brigham got the merchants together and said, okay, we're having we're dividing into rich and poor. We cannot do that. That's what destroyed the Nephite Zion. We're trying to build Zion. We, We can't have rich and poor. So I need you guys to get together and figure out how we can. not have this division, and so uh, he gave him that charge and let him loose. And they would come back to him and say, Well, now what do you want us to do <laughs> anyway? So he inv- he had invited, and th- this was the beginning of uh, ZCMI Zion's Cooperative Mercantile Institute, yep. which was patterned after what happened in uh, Brigham City. Um. And uh, so Brigham had invited the non-member merchants who were getting rich off the saints. You know, they would bring in, uh, and the and the Mormon merchants were doing this too, they would bring in goods from back east and charge three, four, five hundred percent markup. And
0: mm-hmm. it's just
1: draining the capital as well as creating this rich and poor dichotomy among the saints. And uh, so, so anyway, he invited those merchants to participate. Well, Uh, and when they didn't they just moved ahead without them and the saints were purchasing their goods through zcmi and not through these merchants so they were losing money hand over fist well what did they do contacted the newspapers back east Mm. they contacted the politicians back east they contacted the the, uh, ministers back east and said these crazy mormons oh my gosh look what they're doing, they're in rebellion, blah, 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 and robbed them all up, and it was a combination between those three entities uh, that created essentially the Utah War, and the U.S. government shut, literally shut down all the Zion building uh, mechanisms that they had put in place, and there were several. So that's that's how it ended. Uh, we basically, I mean, they, the uh, t- uh, government took the, the government literally conquered the church, put us in bondage essentially right forced us to participate in Babylon's economic system and here we are um, uh, and, and which is interesting because President Nelson gave a talk uh, before he became uh, the president of the church 13 times in his talk he refers to the church as modern Israel. Well, I would argue that, yes, we are modern Israel, and we are in bondage in modern Babylon.
0: Interesting.
1: And uh, we're we're so used to it. Um, Elder Stone, he was a member of the 70. I think he's passed away. Um, I believe it was him that gave the talk. He basically was talking about Las Vegas. He doesn't come out and say it, but you could tell uh, as a representative of Babylon. And he and his entire talk is fantastic. He says, you know, we have to build Zion, um, and uh, we're going to have to separate ourselves from Babylon to do that. We can't we can't live in this cocoon. He uses that term uh, that Babylon has created for us and build Zion. We we have to break out of that cultural cocoon and and build Zion uh, on our own so that's yeah that's how it ended and so it, was it was kind a of one of those end. things
0: yeah it's it one of those things if you can't beat them join them sort of a thing okay.
1: that's what we did
0: yeah that's fascinating now let me ask you this and then we're going to dive in a little bit more deeper on maybe some principles around Zion itself and then I want to focus maybe on the the communities that that you're participating in but one of the things that I have seen lately because as a Mormon podcaster, albeit a fundamentalist one, but a Mormon podcaster nonetheless, I kind of like to keep my thumb on the pulse of all things Mormon, right? And some of the stuff that I've seen over the last few years that has really given me significant pause is some of the kids coming out of BYU today seem to have this notion that. Um, united order in Zion was nothing more than communism with a theological bent. And to me, that that scares me to death. Because look, I'll be honest with you, communism on its own is a horror show enough. But if you mix communism with some sort of weird theology, then you can now do some things that, that I'll be quite honest with you, Lenin could only fantasize about.
1: And right. Marx could right. only
0: fantasize about. Right? Can Can you show the the distinctions between Zion and and the United Order and communism?
1: Sure. Yeah. Uh, compulsion. Right. <laughs> One word: compulsion. Um, you know, God obviously highly values uh, freedom of choice, and um, communism, in practice. Has always been uh, authoritarian dictatorship, um, you know, and and uh, the um, idealistic ideologues say, well, we haven't tried true communism yet. Well, you know, whatever. <laughs> Every single time it's been applied, it's been a disaster for humans. Um, so the the United Order is you. One of the things that I gathered from doing this research, I'm kind of going around the barn to answer your question. Oh, no, you're good. And, and I'll probably forget your question by the time I get around the barn. Um, uh, shoot. See, I've already forgotten it. Um,
0: we were talking about compulsion. Yes. So let, let let me tell you what, what I saw different, and then maybe you could add to it because sure. I I kind of went through a phase where I did a deep dive on this. And I went to the scriptures, I went to the Doctrine and Covenants. I can't remember for the life of me what section it was. You could probably quote it for me. But the the what I was noticing was is that property was still respected there, right? And so as as I looked at the DNC and then I read a few accounts. What what it sounds like is like you desired to enter the order. You went in and you spoke with the bishop before anything ever happened. You said, you know, this is the I, I want to enter. This is what I have to consecrate. And then you and the bishop would have this conversation where he's like, OK, how much do you need? How much does, you know, let's talk about your family needs, these sorts of things. You consecrated your stuff and then you actually received a deed for a plot of land and then going forward you could add upon that and the the only stipulation was is that then you donated the surplus you consecrated the surplus to the bishop's storehouse and then that that allowed allowed you to to continue to go and if you ever desired to leave you got to leave with that deed or sell the property or and keep the proceeds or whatever so when when I hear kids say things like, you know, it's just communism with with you know righteous communism, if you will, I'm like, ooh, that that spooks me a little bit. I get a little freaked out. Let's <laughs> let's not go there, kiddos. This, this is a can of worms you don't want to open. Property rights were still respected. Yeah, free agency was still respected. Did yeah. I miss anything anywhere there? Or no, did no. Well, there
1: there's also the little element of. It wasn't just land you got back. The land you got back was to grow your own food. But what you also got back was the tools of your trade. I mean, if you mm-hmm. were a carpenter, you know, he wouldn't give your carpenter tools to some other guy who doesn't know how to use them. You give them back to you. Right. Right. So, and, and the beauty of that system is that your motivation is supposed to be out of love. So, as a, as a, uh, uh, as a furniture maker, It would bring me huge joy to make your daughter as a wedding gift, a beautiful chest of drawers. And I would make it beautiful. It would be a masterpiece. Can you buy a masterpiece in our market today? No, no. Chest of drawers master, no, it falls apart. You you pull the drawer out and the whole thing collapses. Piece of trash. So in my view, when we're motivated out of love uh, for our fellow man in our community, we're we're going to do the best we can for them uh in blessing their lives with our talents to me that's zion um yeah a society based on love of god and love of your fellow man yeah two great commandments and yeah, it, our, it, yeah.
0: oh i'm sorry i didn't mean to cut you off go ahead
1: well i, I did want to go back to uh, i finally remembered what it was that uh i was going to say okay uh you asked about the communism and the united order one of the things i gathered out of the out of doing all this research for this book was that communism talks about the redistribution of wealth socialism and communism talk about that okay that's not what brigham and his apostles were about they were about the redirection of wealth's power not redistribution, Mm. not dividing everybody's goods up. Every Mormon I've ever talked to who brings up the law of consecration says, oh yeah, we're going to push in all our stuff and divide it up. No, that's not what the law of consecration is. Sorry. Eh. Um, What Brian Taylor both did was they took the businessmen who had very good skills at uh, generating wealth and said, okay, instead of doing what, uh, what's his name that really rich guy right now who owns half of america what's his uh, name bill gates the other guy
0: jeff bezos
1: yeah those guys instead of them just um i'm thinking of the real old guy with the white hair warren buffett yeah him so warren buffett is probably got a heart of gold but he loves what he does he loves doing it he loves the process that's where he gets his jollies right what Brigham and John Taylor would have gone is gone to Warren Buffett and say, hey, Warren, you're amazing. You've done all this wonderful stuff. Can we get you to help all these poor people do the same thing as you're doing? Mm. Redirecting the wealth's power to benefit the entire community. Warren Buffett doesn't need another billion dollars. He, he's just doing it because it's fun for him. Right. right. So he needs some religious leader to motivate him to voluntarily help his neighbors right well
0: and and i think i think this ties into something else that i've i've that's always bugged me when when a lot of folks would talk about zion it was always about taking everybody down a notch right now and and sometimes they'll talk about it and it's not even a notch they want to knock people down completely in my estimation as i read things they weren't looking at knocking people down a whole bunch they were looking at bringing people up right and this this idea that that um well let let me put it this way we tend to look at wealth and the the game out there that that babylonian system as um a pie and there's only so many ways that pie can be divided right Scarcity mentality. Exactly. I think what what the United Order, the Law of Consecration, Zion was all about was no, 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 no. Th- that stuff is endless. We can we can make this work. You know, we can grow exponentially, and and there doesn't have to be a scarcity. So as he's talking about bringing people up, there's not a scarcity mentality involved in it, right? It's there's plenty here. It's it's not a matter of plenty. It's just a matter of do we want to do this bad and enough
1: to, to make it happen? Is,
0: is that a misconception
1: on my part? No. Well, yeah, I share that opinion.
0: Okay. Okay. And, yeah. And, yeah. And you're look, I always say, I get people on here way smarter than me. So I'm going to default to you <laughs> on a lot of this. So, so, and, and it's not hard to do. So that uh, gives me a wide range of, of options for guests, but <laughs> you're, um, yeah. So, so yeah, I'm going to default to you on that. Cause this has been your area of expertise, right? Well, I've read a lot. So let, let me ask you this. Cause I think this is important too. Cause like I said, we're, we're right now in, in this place of just build Zion within your own homes, right? Maybe in your wards. And if you're really lucky, even your stake, right? But we have no clue what that means, but we have no clue what that means. No. So how do we, and again as a convert i was fired up about this stuff man i was like Mm -hmm. here we go um how do we how do we motivate members no matter you know what branch of mormonism they are in this process right how do we get people fired up to want to put their hands to it and and dig into this
1: well I, i know it feels like i'm just trying to plug my book, but every time oh. I sit down with this book, I wrote this like four or five years ago, and every once in a while I, I'll just sit down and start reading it, and I go, "Holy crap, we are missing the boat." Yeah, <laughs> I just read these quotes, and they were bound and determined to build an enoch style Zion society here in Utah. That that it was. It's so obvious when you read their words. That and and I just so to answer your question read their read what they wrote you don't have to buy my book go to my blog site uh, buildingzion.org and half of the quotes are on there just read them there for free um hey, hey hang tight a second you want to read the book everybody <laughs> should read the book. whatever
0: so no 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 i i i agree with you in some sense i feel like sometimes you know, as Mormons, we've lost the vision, right? I we believe we have. We've lost the vision. We're I mean, we're, yeah. we're content now with Babylon, with Babylon, right? And yeah. and and we think that you know maybe some of the church church service we offer or you know our tithing is enough, but it's really not. I mean, that's that's just scratching the surface, right? For if you want to build Zion, you you've got to want something a little more.
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: And and I think I so. Think some, as as people, we're always looking down the road for answers, right? The answers are in front of us. Well, sometimes they're behind us, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes we got to turn around, we got to read, and we got to do a little bit of study. As a surveyor, I've always said, you have an initial point in beginning. And let's say you're off a half a degree in two feet. You'll never see it. But if you're off half a degree over a mile, well, that's compounding error.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And and sometimes I feel like we, we had our good starting point and we started down and maybe we got off, you know, 30 feet away by a quarter degree. Now we're off a half. Now all of a sudden we're way off. And And sometimes... It takes looking back to see that course correction, which I think is the genius of your book because it, it's just not your opinion. You're going back to the old guard saying, Okay, what did they have to say about this?
1: Yeah. 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 And I and I don't I don't seriously, I don't fault the leadership of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, God hasn't told me to fix it, so I'm not gonna. I'm not even gonna try. That's <laughs> right. not my job. <laughs> um um, I was just hoping, hey, let's review the past. Let's review what they taught and maybe think about. I, I Honestly, I thought maybe 20 years, 30 years, 40 years after I die, this will be taken seriously <laughs> among the saints. M- my hope was I- I'm going to do this life work and hopefully it'll do some good uh, in the future. That that was my hope. Um, yeah, we'll see.
0: Well, I, I think you've done a great work there in that book. I think it's super helpful. So let me ask you this. We've kind of defined Zion a little bit. What what was it that made you, and, and I'm always curious about this because I have a story similar with this podcast. What was it that that motivated you to write a book, right? Because a lot of us have, have those things we love to study about but we never take the initiative to go and actually write a book about it what yeah. was what, what, what was your inspiration for writing that book what 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 motivated you to do that
1: um well youtube <laughs> i i actually so as i was gathering these quotes it started falling neatly into 12 categories you know i i used to teach years ago, taught classes on how to use Excel spreadsheets. So I naturally am using Excel, a new tab for every category. Right. And then I subcategorized them within that tab. And um, so I had this huge spreadsheet uh, with all these quotes uh, color coded the whole deal. And um, and then I just by chance saw a video on YouTube. How to write a book in an hour. <laughs> or something like that, ten easy steps or whatever it was, and and the guy said, um, you know, what um, what are the main points you want people to go away with? Well, I said, well, I've already got the twelve categories. There they are. There's the first twelve chapters, and um, so I thought, gosh, I I really could write a book. So <laughs> it was just just the suggestion by some guy on YouTube. That I happened to run across his video and I thought, ah, I'll do that. So I did.
0: You're way more obedient than I am. I, <laughs> thought, I thought doing this podcast for a good, a good solid. I, in all honesty, it was probably only three or four days. But it felt like forever as I argued with the Lord. I'm like, you got yeah. the wrong guy. You need to go find somebody else. Yeah. And I re- I remember coming home with a microphone and the laptop. And my wife's like, what's that for? And I'm like, oh, well, let me tell you. And she's like, no.
1: <laughs> you're nuts.
0: Well, she had, this was her exact quote, Jesse. She just looked at me sweetly as she always does. And she goes, well, you've had dumber ideas. And then just left it at that. So, I mean, that's that's kind of how. You too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's how I got in it did this. But this episode of the podcast is brought to you by DeseretFlag.com. I've said this before, and I really mean it. Mormonism isn't just a religion, it's a culture. As such, it has its own vernacular and practices, but also its own symbols. And those symbols become even more important and prominent when you look back into our history. Perhaps one of the most recognizable symbols of Mormonism is the Deseret Flag. This is the flag that I use as cover art in this podcast. This was also used for a good chunk of time during the pioneer era in Utah. Now, today we have people who want to replace the existing Utah flag with some other progressive monstrosity. Well, I think it's damn past time that we start pushing back here a little bit in Utah. Our friends at Defending Utah are here to help you with that. Now, if you go to DeseretFlag.com, you can now purchase your own Deseret State flag. It's time here that we start making ourselves known and join the resistance against those who seek to rewrite our state's history. Go to deseretflag.com or check out the link in this episode's page show notes and get yours today. Can't get enough of the Mormon Renegade podcast? Well, good news. We're on Patreon, and there's three packages that you can choose from. The first one, the Slightly Rowdy package, allows you to hear the podcast without all those pesky commercials getting in the way. For those who want a slightly more in-depth experience, there's the Stirring It Up package, where you can hear ad-free audio, ad-free video, and transcripts. Finally, for those who want to go full Renegade, that package is available too, where you can get everything in the previous two packages, plus an extra show where myself and Ben Winfield break down the news of the day from a very Mormon point of view. You will also get exclusive access to Renegade Chat, and on there you'll be able to talk to others about the show or whatever topics are on your mind. Go to Patreon today and get your exclusive content. All right, so... At, at what point in your life did you did you find out about this cooperative, this land cooperative?
1: Yeah, I um, I because uh because I had written the book and I thought, okay, well, you know, instead of complaining about the fact that the saints aren't embracing this, why don't I go as on an informal, uncalled mission? Why don't I share these ideas and try to say, hey, you know, we could be doing this instead of sitting around in Babylon and um so i built a website uh, zionbuilders.org it's still up i'm taking it down i should probably go back and look at it um and then created a facebook group and started inviting uh you know people who talked about zion and said hey let's let's look at this M- maybe oh in fact it was my research on brigham city so um mm-hmm. uh, when I was reading about Brigham City, maybe I should talk about this a little. Bit. Yeah. Um, Brigham City was amazing. Uh, Brigham Young asked John or uh, Wilfred Woodruff, no, Lorenzo Snow. Brigham Young asked Lorenzo Snow to take some bunch of Scandinavian immigrants to a little tiny town called Box Elder. It was a little, what do we say that in English? Dorf in German. A little tiny town and uh build a self-sustaining community. That was his challenge. And so they renamed the town Brigham City. Uh, and it took it took uh Wilfred or Lorenzo Snow a while to figure out how to start it. And and this leads into how I got involved with the co-op system. Um, uh, the first thing he did was build, a, it took him a while to figure it out, and I think, I'm, I'm pretty sure George Q. Cannon was the brains behind the whole cooperative movement. I'm, I'm fairly confident he was. I can't prove it, but I'm fairly confident. Um, I, I'm guessing Lorenzo Snow got the idea from George Q. Cannon to start a co-op store. And so what he did was, difference between the basic core fundamental difference between a co-op and a regular corporation is that the shareholders are local. They either work there or they shop there. Those are the people who own it. So you don't have some distant shareholder who couldn't care less about your customers, couldn't care less about your product, couldn't care less about your environment, as long as he's getting profit off his shares, right? And in a co-op, it's the local people. The the profits stay in the community. So so he went around and invited everybody, please, please, please buy one share in the co-op. And so you can benefit from the profits of this operation. So then he also would invite anyone who produced anything to sell their goods through the co-op store. And this is how they were combating all these merchants, bringing in these products and charging three, four hundred, five hundred 400, 500% markup. Um, and so he started that in around, I don't remember the exact year, 1860 something. And uh, then he went on vacation to Hawaii. Actually, I think it was a mission. And uh, when he got back, there was ten thousand dollars in the savings account. So after doing distributions to all the shareholders, they also put money in a savings account. So with that ten thousand dollars, he built he had built a uh, tannery. So they took all the surplus hides from the local ranchers and made belts and buckle or belts and hats and. saddles and whatever else you make out of leather, and sold those goods through the co-op store, took the profits from that, and built a a cotton factory, I think, or something. I can't remember. And they just kept doing that over and over and over again until they had 40 different industries in their little town. They estimated that they had achieved, in in just 10 years, they had achieved 85% self-sufficiency. And everyone in town Worked for who had a job, you know, wasn't self-employed. Worked for one of these forty departments they called them. So this this was what really got my attention, and this uh, and that is as I'm reading this in Great Basin Kingdom about what he did. Uh, I had at the time neighbors who I cared about losing their homes due to unemployment in their tenth year, Brigham City in the middle of a worldwide recession had zero percent unemployment. Zero. Everybody had a job. And nobody was losing their homes during their worldwide recession. And I thought we should build towns like this. And that's when I set up that Facebook page. That's when I set up that uh, website and was trying to say, hey, let's do this. This is an economic miracle we We can do this. My plan was to do it virtually first, so to build an online store, invite people to sell their goods through it. And uh, my doctor ended up reading my book. I asked him, can I put a can I put a copy of my book in your in your? Uh, well, he took it home and read it. <laughs> he says, "You really ought to talk to Philip Gleason with Operation Self-reliance." And so I, he gave me Philip's phone number. I called him up and said, I hear you're building cooperative communities. And he goes, yeah, come watch my presentation. So my wife and my sister um, and we watched his lame PowerPoint presentation, <laughs> which I've since made into a video. And um, I thought he's going to end up in the same place I want to end up in, a cooperative community where the profits are kept local, self-sufficient. Uh, everybody's producing all their own food, water, and power in one place, um, and so I joined. Mm-hmm. And this was before we had any property. At the time when I joined, they had just given up on some land in Arizona because the the seller, the family, wouldn't negotiate on the price, and it was just way too high. Um, and then and then they started looking in uh, San Pete County. And you can get enough land in Pete County, but you cannot get enough water rights to build a town. It's just not possible. So then uh, a guy, one of the six original shareholders, found Riverbed Ranch um, and said, hey, you guys ought to come look at this. This is This might work really good for us. It's a cute little valley in between these two mountains, beautiful mountains. And we were trying to find it on Google Earth, and it was like, where is it? Where is it? We finally found it. It was like, wow, it's way out in the middle of nowhere, and uh, and then all this insanity with COVID happened, and now we're wondering if it's far enough out. <laughs> but anyway, so, so that was that you was. You so, sound like
0: my kind of people, right there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you know, it's kind of funny because we do tours occasionally on Saturdays. Uh, we used to do them almost every Saturday, and now with the second. Uh, community down in arizona we don't but um during the height of covid one or two people occasionally would show up wearing masks and by the end of the tour they had taken it off because nobody else was wearing. Off. good for them good for you uh, guys
0: yeah so so, anyway. so is that community is that community functioning a lot like what you described about brigham city
1: Not yet. Uh, The challenge is, everything takes longer than you think. So we do have uh, at least somewhere around 120 people living there full time. But the vast majority are focused on getting their infrastructure in place, their house, their barn, their greenhouse, their septic, their solar, their water well, their water system, their greenhouse. Getting all that in place, that's a lot of effort. Mm -hmm. So only, I think there are only two maybe three homes that are finished mine will be finished this month i think phillips uh, he already got his move-in permit from the county whatever that's called
0: occupancy Uh, permit
1: yeah that um so uh we think by the end of this year there'll probably be 18 homes completed um so we're not I, I want to cut our shareholders a ton of slack. We're humans. Um, the vast are uh, nose to the grindstone, make it happen, get it done. There are, are some that uh, I'm guessing I don't know out of fear are freaking out and causing all sorts of drama, which is which is sad and frustrating. But y- you got to have compassion for them because. You know, maybe they bit off more than they can chew. Mm-hmm. Um, um, anyway, so the cooperative store is not in place yet. I mean, we sell gasoline and diesel, but that's all. Um, because, you know, we all have the idea is we're going to build this wall out of bricks. And those bricks are independent, self-sustaining homesteads. So we don't have them all built yet. So we're not ready to move to the next step to organize as cooperatives, at, you know, sub co-ops, we call them, to do the the co-op store, to do the K-12 school, to do, you know, all the social stuff that, that every community needs. Uh, we do encourage everyone to have their own home-based business so that we can have a real live economy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we do have an electrician, we've got, among our shareholders, we've got some a a huge breadth and depth of skills you know we've got a dentist a doctor a couple of nurses um, a couple of midwives three babies i think two or three babies have been born out there that's awesome so it it's a going concern but no we're we're not mature yet we're we're still you know a little sprout in the in the garden (laughs) right um and and i have I have great anticipation for where where we can go once all the homesteads are built out and self-sustaining. Well, At that point we'll be unstoppable.
0: It, well it sounds like that that it's still full, full steam ahead. I mean the the one in Utah doesn't sound like it's up and functional yet but you guys are already starting one in Arizona.
1: Yeah, well Phillips um how old is he now? 73, 72, I can't remember. Um and he's kind of anxious to get, the plan is to build five of these communities and network them together. So we're essentially building an, I, I assume the NSA is listening. We're, we're essentially building an alternative economy uh, from the ground up. And to, and to do that, we're building five communities and those five communities are gonna trade with each other eventually, you know, and we're just barely starting on getting the second one going phillips like i say 70 something he's kind of anxious to get all five of them going before he gets too old to do it does that make sense absolutely so yeah. yeah
0: but i think you're hitting on something that i believe personally is vitally important and it's something i've actually talked about on the podcast before and again the the answers lie behind us is i i've had the contention that for a long time mormonism might be the First and perhaps the most successful counterculture in American history. We need to go back to that because as I look around and I see the 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 econ- economics of today, they don't make sense, right? Like at this point, I think we're trading with 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 monopoly money. Um, I think that you know we're we're one black swan event away from utter collapse right it's just the
1: truth of it and and and, and this isn't unique this has no. happened with every world power that's ever been in the last several thousand years they all rise they get prosperous they become the dominant world power economically and then they collapse every civilization has done it this one's going to too yeah
0: and and this idea of a of a counter you know of a, a parallel economy right is going to be so important. Um, and and it sounds like, because even if, if a collapse doesn't happen, a currency reset, let's say we go to a digital dollar, something like that. Look, I, I don't know if you can tell here, but I really like to eat. And the first time somebody says you've had your allotment of cheeseburgers for the month,
1: That's I'm right. going to
0: go ballistic. That's so, right. I mean at some point, this just makes sense, right? There's there's two or three different scenarios that I think are probably inevitable that, that there's going to need to be a system like this in place. So let me ask you this. How, how big do you, do, does Philip think that, uh, that these communities will be? Does he say, okay, the, this is the max number of people we can have in one community before we need to start another one?
1: Well, from the research he did, uh, <clears throat> he came up with the understanding, there was some, somebody did some research and they said, if you're going to have a community last for more than one generation, you know, the United States has a bunch of intentional communities, but it's all leftover hippies and college kids. Well, you don't have babies. (laughs) There's no, there's not going to be a next generation in those communities because there's nobody having kids. So uh, uh, the research he read said you need at least 200 families to have an intergenerational community. So a community that will last for generations. So uh, Riverbed Ranch had enough room for 250 families. Uh, Costler Cove in Arizona, I'm hoping we can squeeze 200 in there. Um, It's actually bigger property, but there's a bunch of rocky areas that won't work for co-ops. One of the things uh, about, one of the things that uh, goes on that list of things that surprised me when I did the research was that they taught over and over again, early LDS leaders, that Babylon, and they referred to the American economy as Babylon, Babylon will fall and we have to become self sustaining. Mm-hmm. They taught that over and over again. And, uh, you know, I could read a dozen quotes right here in the in this chapter, uh, chapter nine, I believe it is. Uh, that Babylon's going to fall. We have to become. We have to produce all our own clothes. We have to produce everything, and that was the push to be self-sustaining. And um, so, once we build these five communities, they can specialize if they want to, or whatever. You know, it's free country, uh, but they'll be can be trading with each other and also then within uh within their own community as well i i have i have hope that uh that the saints will pull through and do it i i'm afraid that between here and there it's going to be very rough Mm -hmm. um for us all uh surprise me at all um if somebody or something takes out the power grid Um, every agency in the U S government has done a report saying, this is not a matter of if it's a matter of when. Right. So to be independent, producing all our own food, water, and power, that just makes perfect sense to me. Why would you do anything else?
0: (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, And so I worked for a little while out on the Eastern shore of Maryland, about three years, left Idaho, went back east because they surveyed differently out there. and I wanted an opportunity to see that. And um, one of the things that that I noticed right away was um, there's there there was absolutely um, no plans for emergency. And in, I was back in Maryland when Katrina hit New Orleans. Mm. And I worked for a a massive conglomerate of, I mean, we had our own dirt movers, our own pavers. I was just one cog in that wheel as a surveyor. But I got got the opportunity to go down and survey on the new levees, right? Mm. And I happened to meet a good guy down there and I'm still friends with him to this day. And he's an emergency management coordinator. And he'll be the first to tell you that we do the best we can, but at the end of the day, you really are kind of on your own. I yeah. mean, there's there's no doubt about that. And I asked him once, going back to what you were saying about the power grid. I said, "What's your nightmare scenario?" He's like, "Oh, EMP." I mean, he didn't even didn't even hesitate. Right? He's just like EMP. And I'm like, "What? Well, what's that?" And he's like, "Electromagnetic pulse." And I'm like, "Well, what causes that?" He says, "Oh, a variety of things." He's like, "A sunburst." You know, that, that could be one of them. He's like, there was one in the 1900s, fried pa- fried telegraph lines up and all over the country. I mean, all, they over actually, the world. all over the world. Yeah, they they caught fire, right? Yeah. I mean, like, really took it out. Yeah. And he said, the other is, is, if, you know, a country did want to invade, it would, you know, if you detonated one in an airburst, he said, that's prime for them because you don't contaminate the ground. I mean, you have a little bit of fallout, but not much. Mm-hmm. And he said, Two, maybe three, well-placed, would take out the country's entire grid.
1: It would put us back to the 1500s.
0: And I was like, well, what's so bad about that? And he's like, well, he goes (laughs) down the list. And he's like, well, let's just start with people who are on life-saving medication. Those people are done. Mm -hmm. No more. Mm -hmm. You're not getting it anymore. A a common cut is now going to get infected and people will start dying from infection again. He's Mm -hmm. like, today, when you get a real bad you know, nasal infection or you get sick. He's like, it's not a big deal. You run to the, you run to the doc. He writes you a script. You go to the target, you get it filled. You're feeling better in no time. You're going to die from that. Mm-hmm. Right. And and then he's like, oh, and and then, you know, even before we get to massive hunger, you have roving gangs of individuals. Right. And he just goes down this list. And I'm like, you got to be a joy at parties, my man. <laughs> I'm, I'm <laughs> like, like I'm sure you're the most popular guy there, but but it, it really opened up my eyes, right? And and yeah. I remember he said something that really startled me. He said the the average American family is exactly three meals away from starvation.
1: Yeah. Always oh, yeah. like
0: we live in a in a time now where oh we're out of food. I guess we'll just go to the store, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we saw in COVID that was very very fragile. Right. That is so fragile. Yeah. Um, I remember me and my son if if you remember governor herbert at that time came out and had you know kind of given everyone warning that hey in like three days we're going into a lockdown situation and he went out of his way to say but the stores are still going to be open don't worry about that and so my son who who was in college at the time um him and his wife and his granddaughter came to live with us because his business just knew what it meant right and said we're going to lay off because we're non-essential. So lay off. And, and he's like, dad, I think I'm just going to have to go be a surveyor. And I'm like, you shut your dirty mouth. Just, <laughs> just, we got a downstairs apartment. You guys can live in that and, you know, just stay in school. And so he, they came to live with us. And uh, and this was just a couple days before lockdown hit. And I was like, it was him and I were up talking into the I want to say it was like 1130 at night and he's like how do you think people are faring in this and I'm like I don't know I was like it's Utah right I mean they got to be doing the 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 LDS church has been talking for years about food storage I'm sure you know it's fine we got to be better than everybody else and he goes why don't we just he's like you want to go to Winco like sure let's go to Winco right so at like midnight we go to Winco and dude it was it it honestly shook me, and, and I had a lot of empathy for people because as I'm in there, the sh- for the first time in my life, the shelves are bare, right? And people are grabbing food the second it hits the floor, even before it's out of the box, off the pallet. They're just waiting for the truck to come in, and they're grabbing food as quick as they can, and yeah. the fear was so palpable at 1230 in the morning. In Orem, Utah, and yeah. I was like and and this was a little startling too. I remember I remember the message just came that you know, maybe we as a people have failed here. Yeah. maybe maybe this was gut check time. Maybe this was a good test to see yeah. where you're at yeah and and i I can't agree with you more that, that at some point something's going to happen, and we want to be in a position to where we can be as self-sufficient as possible.
1: Yeah. And and my argument is A, we should be moving in the direction of building Zion, but B, somebody has to survive to yes. build it. Somebody has to build the new Jerusalem. It's not going to build itself. <laughs> um, so somebody has to survive between here and there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it and and with all this um the way things are going with um well, like China's um, social credit system. Yeah, I, I literally read with my own eyes on this very screen an article in a finance journal saying uh, China's credit system, uh, social credit system, is going to roll out worldwide. Be sure to invest in this company, this company, this co- big list of companies that you need to invest in, so that you can make money off the world tyranny. Cool! <laughs> uh, yay!
0: That's the worst timeshare yeah. ever. Let's just yeah. get out
1: of the way. So, so clearly, the movement is in that direction. We're we're going to essentially enslave the entire world using the internet or some form of the internet. Uh, it just makes perfect sense to me. You know, Revelation 18, I believe it's 18, talks about the mark of the beast. You can't buy or sell. Those are economic activities. You can't buy or sell unless you have the mark. Well, if I'm growing my own food, producing my own electricity, have my own well, what do I need with a mark? Right. Right. (laughs) What do I need that for? Right. So
0: anyway. Let me ask you this. In setting these up, what has been the biggest obstacle?
1: Well, that's interesting, because I just did a survey. In fact, maybe I should pull that up. I just did a survey uh, among the people who haven't joined our co-op after they did the tour. So about uh, almost exactly 30% of the people who come do a tour, they just fall in love with the place and they join. Um, the other 70% don't. So I thought, well, I should ask them, why? What, why aren't you joining? What's the obstacle? And the number one obstacle for riverbed Ranch is it's too far out there. <laughs> you know, I've got grandkids, I, you know, it's too far for my family to come visit me, which is hilarious because we have grandparents out there and their kids come, their grandkids come visit them. And the people who live out there go to town on average, uh, one and a half times a week. So it's not like they're moving to Hawaii or Alaska. <laughs> right. Um, anyway, so, um, yeah. And of course the cost, you know, it's not cheap to build a homestead where the the members of the co-op are constantly finding ways to save money, but cost is a, is a real issue for a lot of people. There are a lot of people live paycheck to paycheck. They have no savings. They see the writing on the wall and say, i got to get out of here, but they're stuck because they don't, they don't have the resources. Um, We feel bad for those people, but at this point we can't help them once we're built out completely we will be able to help them in fact um, it's actually quite likely that people once once our community is fully fleshed out we figure there'll be 900 to a thousand people we'll be the third or fourth largest town in our county Um, once we're built out fully if there's if there's an emp strike for example and these 70 percent who couldn't could make it out to us, come out to us and say, okay, we know you guys are producing food, can we help? We'll either hand them a shovel and say, okay, help us grow the food or we'll hand them a backpack. And we actually have 4,000 backpacks someone donated and with full of food and say, pick, you know, either you stay here and work and support yourself or be on your way. Um, I, can, I can see that being a very real possibility.
0: You know, and and that's so refreshing to hear because I think so many people have this idea of we're just going to bunker in, build a wall, and keep everybody else out. And well, <laughs> I, I've said for a long time on on two fronts. Let's f- start first with just practicality. There's always going to be more of them than more of then, th- yeah. there are of us. Yeah. Also, that's not what Zion. And, and again, I'm not saying that you guys are building Zion. You're building a stepping stone to that. But, um, I, I want to make that clear, but that's not what this whole exercise is about, right? and And, in some of the things I've read from Brigham and John Taylor, people are going to flow to those Zion communities for safety. and yeah. if if we don't offer that as Mormons, well, we failed. right? i I don't know how else to say it we we've We've failed, right? Yeah. Now, obviously, you gotta deal with the troublemakers and the rabble rousers and those sorts of things,
1: but which won't aver- be pleasant.
0: yeah, no, it's not. but the average you know dad and mom who are like i I just I just gotta feed my kids right I-, I I almost tear up now thinking about i I couldn't turn someone away as much as I'd want to. I couldn't right? I'd be like, crap. okay, here we go. And so if, if we're not those people, and if we're not ready to receive the, you know, God's children that way, I, I don't think we've we've done our job.
1: Yeah, yeah. One of the, the, there's a a wonderful, I'd recommend this to all your listeners, the book uh, One Second After. That is so sobering to read that book. And it's a novel. But it's based on that concept of an EMP strike in the United States. And it's very sobering. You read that and you go, okay, I am definitely going to get my food storage. Uh in, in the intro video that we have on YouTube and our and our website, um, Philip tells this story. Uh, you know, after he and his family had to deal with freezing cold uh in their trailer. Uh, He got on this uh, kick to do food storage, so it took him multiple years. He finally, uh, you know, and he had more kids, so he had to get more and more food storage. He finally had two years supply, and he, when he realized, okay, I'm done, I've got it, he laid down in bed trying to go to sleep, and this little voice in the back of his head goes, okay, what are you going to do if the crisis lasts two weeks longer than your food storage. I I ask everyone who has food storage that same question. What are you going to do if the crisis lasts two weeks longer? Well, you obviously have to be producing food. You have to be producing food. You've got to get good at it. And that takes practice. So don't wait until the crisis hits (laughs) to start your garden, to plant your grapevines, to plant your fruit trees. That's just foolishness
0: yeah what what have you had to to do let me phrase this has the government been m- impeded you guys in any way
1: yes um i don't think it was malicious necessarily it just you know this is different this is a different System. There are co ops. Over a million Americans own their land or their house through a co op. It's not unusual. It's just, it's not customary. Customary is a developer comes in, builds a bunch of uh, rickety houses and sells them all, and he's gone, and you never hear from him again. We're doing something completely different. Um, And so, and gratefully, Philip had gobs of experience dealing with bureaucrats, government employees. And so he you know, slowly uh, uh, acclimated them to what we were doing. And um, uh, short story, I I don't want to forget the other story, so I'm going to write it down here. No, you're Um, good. uh, The first, I believe it was three or four families that took their house plans into the county to get them approved. You know, you have to pay the county money to approve your plans. I love that anyway uh the first three or four they approved them no problem the next guy goes in and they said well we've changed our mind we've decided that you guys either need to put in sprinkler systems in all your homes or you need a volunteer fire department so we're not going to approve your plans until you get one of those well two days later we had 12 people show up for the fire department training volunteer fire department training nice and now we have now we have our own volunteer fire department we have two trucks the county loves us because we're out in the middle of nowhere they can't get there fast enough if there's a crisis we can right so anyway so that's one story so we so the so the county fire department loves us Uh, now uh the other story i want to tell you we uh so we bought so with the land came 2,854 and a half acre feet of water rights, which is worth more than we paid for the land. Um, So we had the water rights. Uh, We had the property in our name. We owned the land, we owned the water rights. We went to the state water rights division. Uh, We worked with a water engineer. Uh, He approved our plan. We started drilling wells. We got uh, nine wells drilled and then apparently his boss saw what we were doing and i'm guessing she, so in the previous year utah hadn't drilled 250 wells we were talking about drilling 250 wells in one space, one setting right? right so i think that kind of freaked out the the head of the water rights division and she didn't want to be in charge of the division during a drought <laughs> And drilling 250 wells. Th- that's my guess. Right. Every, every time. So she shut us down for a year. Couldn't drill any wells for a year. We'd already drilled nine. And then they said stop. So in that year, she kept giving us these ex- excuses, reasons that made absolutely no logical sense to us. Um, and finally, <laughs> Finally, Philip gave up on being diplomatic and hired a water rights attorney. And magically, the water rights division was all smiles and helpfulness. Huh? Weird. So you own. So the lesson there is: if you want justice in America, you just have to pay for it.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's. (laughs) Yeah, I I, you know I tend to agree with Ronald Reagan and what he said that that some of the most frightening words in all the English languages is I'm here from the government and I'm here to help. So I, 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 truly believe that. And, and look, as a surveyor, we deal all the time with, with public, with, with those, with those, you know, uh, municipalities and those, those government agencies, it's a nightmare. It's a hassle. And so I was curious how you guys were faring in that. Cause I could only imagine that somewhere there was some bureaucrat licking his chops, like, Oh no, these people aren't going to do this. They're, they're bucking the system. How, how do you guys intend on governing the community? Is this something that, that, you know, just comes with like some CCNRs, some covenants, conditions, and restrictions with like other land use, you know, like a subdivision or something like that. Or is there like a community meeting? Do you guys elect like a mayor or anything like that? What, how do you foresee this community being governed?
1: Um, the, the fact that you're asking me that question tells me that Babylon is rubbed off on your worldview. Probably, <laughs> yep. You're assuming that we need a government. Okay.
0: You're Why speaking would we, we need language.
1: one? The county has plenty of laws. The state has plenty of laws. The country has plenty of laws. Why do we need more laws?
0: Perfect. No, that's good.
1: <laughs> so the co-op, which is a business, I have to remind some of our shareholders of that. It's not a government. It's not your daddy. (laughs) Right. It's a business. We run it. We're supposed to be running it like a business. We elect board members, and the board members are responsible for that's how co ops work nationwide, worldwide. That's how co ops work. So it's not a government. Uh, So they're, you know, if somebody wants to use co op property or co op assets. Then that issue needs to be brought to the board. Okay. Um, we're not all on the same page with that yet. Um, we're hoping that eventually everybody's going to get it. Right. <laughs> um, most of most of our shareholders, I think, get it. But yeah, let me let me ask
0: this question because I think this is super important as well how is it then that that you guys are making sure that, that the people that are coming out there to live have the same values and principles you do? Because a, a lot of times this sort of lifestyle seems appealing on the surface to a lot of people. But when you get into the nitty gritty and they start having to put in the work or the money or any of those other things, then things become a little more convoluted and they may reach for that government lever a little bit more. Yes. Because it, it makes things easier on their end. How are you guys uh, making sure that, that 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 core group coming in is is well-educated and, and realistic enough about what they're undertaking that you're not getting a lot of people coming in and going, oh, crap, and then selling it like halfway
1: developed? Yeah, uh, that's actually happening. Um, it is a challenge. So we have an interview process that we go through. Uh, first off, the fact that we're out in the middle of nowhere is a huge filter. Mm-hmm. It, 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 um, you have to really be serious about a self-reliant lifestyle to move two hours away from Salt Lake City out in the desert <laughs> on an old alfalfa farm. You've got to be serious about living an off-grid lifestyle. That that alone is a huge filter. But we also invite people we, we tell people, look, we we want you to be serious about self-reliance. A, you need to like people. You know, narcissists don't really work well because they think they know everything and they're always right. Right. That right. doesn't work well in a community setting. Right. <laughs> uh, so you need to really like people and and be able to get along with them. Um. Philip has this whole list and I can't ever remember all five things. <laughs> uh, well, and the last one is you gotta have resources to do this. And that unfortunately, um, that's the second most common reason why people don't join is they can't afford it. Um, remind me of your question. Just how are you? Are you you
0: making sure that you're getting the right kind uh, of people in? The right kind of people in, in that because, I I would imagine that that while you're still building it, that core group is super important, right? I feel, and I'm just hypothesizing here, so I could be completely wrong, but my guess would be is if you had, if you had your core people, they can kind of teach others, right? They can yeah. they can kind of start start passing that along. But that core group's important. So, so what steps are you guys taking to make sure you get the right people in place in that core group to, to give yeah. this thing a fighting chance?
1: So like I say, we do the, we do, so we're out in the middle of nowhere. We do uh interview, interview process to try to discern that. Are are these people A, capable? Are, are they going to play well with others? All of that. Um, then we turn them over to the board and they, Uh, My understanding is they do background checks. You know, we don't really want child rapists and drug dealers in our community. Sorry, go go live in L.A. Right. Uh, Right. uh, So um, so there's that filtering process. There is a huge amount of idea sharing going on at Riverbed Ranch. So everybody sees what everyone else is doing and go, wow, that's a great idea. I'm going to take that and I'm going to tweak it over here, which is what I did with Philip's house plan. I saw how fast his house was going up and I thought, holy cow, I'm going to use that system. And so I said, can I get a copy of your your house plan? Sure. Gives me a copy. I recreate it and I go, there's not enough storage space in this. I'm going to add four feet and put in closets. So, you know, there's gobs of that. Take someone's idea, tweak it, make it a little better, implement it on your own lot. Lots of that going on. Um, and so it. I, 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 this is a generality, okay? So there are exceptions, but typically, and, and again, I say the vast majority of our shareholders are just awesome people. They're, they're getting it done. They're making it happen and they're overcoming the challenges. And there are challenges. Uh, they're problem solvers. They're, they have intellectual courage. They're ready to tackle this project. There are others that I believe, I'm guessing, because of the economy, the housing market slumping, couldn't sell their homes for what they wanted, couldn't sell their homes for what they needed in order to build at Riverbed Ranch, and now they're scared. So there's a few of those. And, and I feel for them, but I, right now, we're the co-op is in a position to help them other mm-hmm. than give them cost-saving ideas, which we're doing plenty of. Um, so yes we you know god's going to cheat when he builds the new jerusalem and it, it really stinks <laughs> and what i mean by that is you know according to our uh, lds doctrine the the telestial people are going to be removed from the earth at the beginning of the millennium right mm-hmm. well those are people who are rooted in in the the, the 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 drive for power gain and glory they're they're shame-based they're guilt-based they're They've got serious pride issues, right? Those are the people who destroy societies. Not, not intentionally, just because they're driven by those motives, they bring a society down until it crumbles. That It's just right. the cycle of history. It just happens over and over again. So, like I say, God's going to cheat when he builds a new Jerusalem because there won't be any of those people around.
0: <laughs> right. So,
1: I would love it if... Um, he would reveal to us what the secret is for identifying celestial motivated people. I don't. I don't have a clue. I wish I knew. Um, uh, according to an author, um, he wrote the book "Power Versus Force." It's quite a interesting book. Interesting read. The author is a doctor, but he had a near death experience when he was nine, I believe, or eleven. And he believes that uh, hum- humanity is on a zero to one thousand. He he calls it enlightenment scale. I call it spirituality scale, from zero to a thousand. You know, and Buddha and Jesus are all over way towards the one thousand end. But he says seventy. He's estimating seventy something percent of mankind operate on the lower end of that scale. Mm -hmm. And the best motivation they can come up with is pride. You know, I'm better than you because I have more blank, whatever goes in that blank. Right. That's pride. And so if 70, 70, 72% of the human population are telestial people, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to find the right people to build a community like this.
0: Right, right.
1: And and I'm in charge of doing that, and it's a challenge. I'll bet you it is. I'll bet you it is. You can only hope
0: that you're, you know, at least for me. I know if I was in charge of something like that, I'd be like, oh, I hope I hope I'm in tune today.
1: Yeah, no kidding. So no kidding.
0: Is there is there anything that I missed? Anything I that, that you think me or the listeners should know here before we wrap up?
1: Well, I guess it's important to reiterate that. Yes, I'm what I call a Zionist, with a T in there, not a Zionist, (laughs) but a Zionist. I study Zion in order to implement the principles of Zion. That's my whole focus. So I'm a Zionist. Philip Gleason is not. (laughs) Riverbed Ranch, you know, Operation Self-Reliance, Costler Cove in Arizona, the next community probably in Idaho. That's not what that's not his stated purpose. He's trying to provide a pathway for people to achieve self-reliance in a safe environment where they can raise food and raise kids on an intergenerational basis. Right. Um, so don't, your audience, don't assume that just because I'm a Zionist that this whole project is about building Zion. To me, it's just the best Possible thing I could be engaged in right now.
0: Fantastic. As a
1: stepping stone to where I want to be.
0: Absolutely awesome. All right, man. Uh, If someone wants to get your book, where where can they go to find that?
1: Amazon. Just search for Champions for Zion or Jesse Fisher and Zion. Um, I also just wrote a book. Now, this might be of interest. It's an ebook, 87 pages, might be of interest to your audience. Not everybody can afford to do what we're doing. So I wrote an ebook with gobs of ideas, and it's called Your Matrix Exit Plan. So, in other words, it, the ebook is to help you create your exit plan to get out of the matrix. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. And it goes through all sorts of uh, uh, ideas and opportunities to to extract yourself from Babylon, from the matrix of dependency. I call it, and uh, that's at matrixexitplan.com.
0: Okay, and then if anyone wanted to reach out and find out about Riverbed Ranch, how do they do that?
1: Uh, I'd probably go to Riverbed-Ranch.com. Okay, and uh, there's a couple of videos there on on the menu. There's a video tab. Click on that. Watch the intro. The I, I label it there the backstory video. That's Philip's story, and then he leads into the Academy of Self Reliance, which is our educational nonprofit. And then he talks about Riverbed Ranch. The same principles apply to Arizona and our future towns. The other three that we end up building. So I definitely watch that video first, and uh, they can contact me through the website.
0: Perfect, dude, you're the man. We've gone almost two <laughs> hours now, and you, you're you're awesome. I appreciate it. Do me a favor. Can can we have another conversation? Maybe either about the other book or, um the self-reliance program and and maybe even uh just keep us up to breast on how the how that community is coming sure. along i want to yeah, be happy to keep be tabs to. on this all right man hey i really appreciate you coming on
1: yeah it was fun appreciate hang, the out.
0: Opportunity. hang out for just a second bye everybody okay. You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast.